Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here, coming back with you uh, for the very end of the month of November. How's it going, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages? I am Mike the Legend, who's glad to be back with you once again, and glad that all of you out there in listener land can be back with us as well. Hope all of you out there are doing well. If you are a listener south of us in America land, hope you had a good, safe, enjoyable Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, we here in Canada question why you waited six weeks to have it. <laughs> Just throwing that out there. Yeah, it's not like our Thanksgiving, you know, was copied off of yours and done way earlier or anything. Exactly. But at a better time, you know, start of October, then, hey, officially gives us, like, more than two months to worry about Christmas. All all you Yanks down there who wait till Thanksgiving as your kickoff, you only got a month. Yeah. Throwing it out there. Yep. Way to be last minute about things. Absolutely. But, uh, alright, and that concludes this episode of the Arcade. <laughs> Before I even introduce myself? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, as you said, you are Mike the Legend. This week I'm Dennis, the man who is constantly amused, impressed, and a little freaked out by the diligence of the Wikipedia community. There, There is some speed to be had by those people, isn't there? Yeah. I mean, granted, it is a crowdsourced effort, largely, but, you know, people still vet the information and, you know, will revert changes and stuff if they deem there's enough discussion around things if it's not well cited and blah 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 so it's it's not a terrible source like it's not it shouldn't be your final source but it's not a terrible source for initial information but mm-hmm. i'm just kind of amused by like how fast you know things can change the latest variant of the coronavirus that's currently going out in case you're not aware in case you're trying to not keep up on it because it's just still too overwhelming and it's been going for way too goddamn long, which I agree, but it's Omicron and, you know, like one of the jokes I saw on Reddit was someone made the joke. It's like, this is not how I wanted to learn the Greek alphabet. <laughs> so I thought that was funny, but then, you know, out of curiosity, you know, the way my brain works is I'm like, huh, Greek alphabet Wikipedia. <laughs> so obviously I went there and like, you know, scroll down. Okay. Interesting. Blah, blah, blah. Omicron's actually somewhere in the middle. So it's... So they skipped a few. It seems like they skipped a few. Not sure what the reasoning there is, but maybe, maybe, anyways, whatever that, that the case is. Omicron just sounds more badass than Epsilon. Yeah. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, Futurama actually, because of like, you remember. Omicron Percy I8. Yeah, Omicron Percy I8, you know, Lur and his wife, uh, (laughs) anyways, all of those aliens who were basically trying to hold Earth hostage because, uh, they wanted uh, the last episode of McNeil, single female lawyer. But uh, yes, but yes, that, that, that's not what I'm talking about, though. Uh, I went to the page for Omicron, and you know they're basically talking about its uses in math and all of this and the etymology of the word and blah blah blah. But then there was like you know the little section on you know the the name Omicron for the variant of COVID nineteen, and I saw that someone had defaced the page, so they changed COVID nineteen to COVID hoax and Omicron to moronic in like four or five different places. And I was just like, huh? So then like, you know, I went back for a second, but then I just like clicked on the page again because I was just going to like, you know, maybe take a screenshot and show it to someone or something. But then I saw that oh, it was already changed back and I was like, Oh, okay. That was pretty fast. Like it was within the span of like a minute that, you know, I saw it anyways. And, uh, Yeah. That was kind of interesting, but also kind of reminded me of another time that I noticed how kind of on top of it people on Wikipedia really are. If you recall, a few months ago, uh, the drummer 
for the Rolling Stones, legendary drummer Charlie Watts, he, he passed away. You know, he was with the band for 50 years or whatever it was. And yeah, he passed away. You know, as it's starting to happen now with some of these old rock guys, they're just kind of starting to pass away because they're in their late seventies, early eighties, whatever. And they live kind of hard lives. And, you know, it's kind of amazing that they let, anyways, all that aside, he died. And I saw what? I think, yeah. <laughs> Why yes. didn't anyone tell me? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I, I saw this, I think it was actually a notification on Apple News that just kind of popped up. It was like, legendary drummer for Rolling Stones, Charlie Watts died. And I was like, oh, so then, you know, I went to the Wikipedia page, cause, you know, that when someone of note that you're kind of vaguely familiar with just kind of passes away, that's what you do. You just kind of like, oh yeah, let me go check it out. When was he born? How old was he? Blah, blah, blah. One of these natural things that you just kind of do. And I noticed that they didn't have the death date on there yet. So, I actually think, like, I refreshed the page, I think, 30 seconds later, and there it was. It was filled in. Death date, full section with details of his death, with links to, you know, various articles already. I was like, holy crap, this was 30 seconds ago. Post Like, I looked on Google, and, like, the newest instance, or, like, the... I think all of the news at that point was, like, three minutes old. Mm-hmm. So it's like this just broke and people have already updated the page <laughs> to make it and references and all of this stuff. It's like, holy crap, morbid, but they're on top of it. Impressive. Yeah. Very impressive. And I'd imagine that, uh, I mean, I don't know the full back end of how Wikipedia works with things being updated, uh, if they're put to any sort of vetting process before a change is committed to a page. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, I, I don't think there is any, like, you can literally post whatever you want, but someone, if it looks like it's like literally like a defacement, like, because someone was able to get that through pretty quickly mm-hmm. of like, you know, the COVID hoax and moronic variant or whatever. There was no filter on that, but then someone went, like, <laughs> the thing is, like, if someone takes issue with that, they can just revert it, and then if a page kind of ends up having way too many edits in a kind of short period of time, I think it gets flagged for review at that point. It's like, okay, this page is being edited way too much. Maybe we'll protect it from defacement. Maybe we'll bring in some experts here and kind of, like, lock it down. Mm-hmm. So... Mm-hmm. May, I think that I think generally that's how it works. I might be wrong on the latter half of it, but I do know that like there are people watching basically every page like a hawk, like every page. Yes, uh, dedicated people for those pages. And from my understanding, how you kind of uh, work your way up in, and I guess the editor community of uh, Wikipedia is. By being a hawk, uh, and keeping your pages, you know, if it's, if it's a page you're very passionate about, you know, like you're a big Rolling Stones aficionado in this example. Yeah. You know, keeping it up to date. Um, you know, keeping it clean, keeping it, uh, accurate, uh, and, uh, being very quick and on the ball for things, uh, you know, if changes are, uh, submitted to the page or things of that nature and, uh, you eventually get noticed and, I guess, work your way up through the editor ranks of uh, Wikipedia. I don't know if there's a, a higher upper echelon or if there is what people would work on or what pages they would cover if they get to be a god-level editor at Wikipedia. But uh, that is my understanding of things. Yeah. But impressive that within, like, a minute or two, there was uh, the update to Charlie Watts' death page. Yeah, and also within a minute or two that some defacement on the page for Omicron, not even on a COVID-19 page specifically. It was just for the Greek letter Omicron. Mm-hmm. So, 
That was pretty interesting. I'd imagine uh, there are certain pages that uh, are given higher priority for attention uh, in the back end, you know, by the Wikipedia people. But the interesting thing I noted, I noticed though, about like the page history was that it actually had other people working on it on unrelated sections on the same day. Like there was something about some algorithm that was being discussed, you know, where Omicron was one of the variables or something in some math discussion. And I thought, well, that was, I guess someone's looking at this anyways. So they're going to notice this other anonymous edit made where someone just replaces COVID-19 with COVID hoax and Omicron with moronic. It's like, okay, well, if someone's passionate about, passionate enough about like discussing all the math implications and stuff, they're just going to look at this and go, yeah, that's 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 dumb. Let's just pervert that part too. So that was it was interesting. Certainly, and you just happened to catch these changes as they happened within yeah. minutes uh, or within moments, breaths even, yeah, uh, of them uh, taking place. Which you know, not often you'll actually see a change like that occur on a Wikipedia page. No, I don't remember who it was either, but it was some female rock star. I remember looking at you know a, a few years ago, and it was just. I think it was Lee Aaron's page, you know, like she's an 80s like metal person, whatever. I don't remember any of her hit songs or anything like that, but she, someone had changed the first sentence to be something along the lines of like, Lee Aaron is a big fat B word, blah, blah, blah. And then it just continued on with the rest of the thing. And I think it was a similar thing there. I refreshed the page after about five minutes and they changed it back. It's like, <laughs> wow. So maybe there's some master log where people just kind of like, just vet any change. Maybe there's a thing where it's like you can alert or you subscribe to alerts that maybe have profanities or mm-hmm. use certain words in them or something like that for you to just kind of monitor and go, oh, if someone's going to use the word moronic, maybe it should be from a quote or something that someone says, not directly like in referring to the description of something. Like that's not very encyclopedia type knowledge. Uh, no, that is a subjective statement. It's uh, not empirical. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so Wikipedia, uh, a good go-to initial resource. Uh, I've also found for pop culture too. Yeah, I mean uh, pop culture issues. I'll more often than not just kind of revert to Wikipedia, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, because really, like it's sort of like the definitive pub trivia thing where it has all of the links to all the interviews and everything that you need, and that's all you really need at that point. Mm-hmm. If you're like, where did this idea for this one Simpsons episode come from? You know, there'll be like, oh, yeah, creator Al or whatever writer. You know, whoever the writer of the episode said in this interview, blah, 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 I was really inspired by this. Oh, interesting. There's a link to the Rolling Stone or something where they're talking to this guy and he talks about that. Okay. That's as good a source as you can take, I guess. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, Wikipedia, uh, currently still fundraising, uh, at this moment, uh, during this month. If, uh, you are like us who, uh, and somebody who uses Wikipedia, well, they, they, they suggest, uh, and humbly ask that, uh, you submit only so many dollars. And if, and if, if everyone does, then they are covered because it is still with no master corporate owner. Yeah. Which is, you know, a lot. To, a lot can be said about that these days, especially. Certainly. I think uh, with the uh, increase in uh, corporate ownership and uh, centralization of media and content uh, and also news resources, that uh, a decentralized, almost community-owned site is a good buffer against uh, us living truly in the world of George Orwell in 1984. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> George Orwell, or as he's soon to be named, Jeff Bezos. <laughs> or Elon Musk, you know, one of these, one of these guys mm-hmm. with too much money and too much influence that they're using that money for and all that nonsense. That will likely, uh, do something or trigger something, uh, start a company that will eventually lead, lead to the destruction of humanity. Uh, if it's, uh, not one of them, it'll be someone else monkeying around with AI and, uh, ultimately we will fulfill the, uh, fates that we've seen, uh, played out in all those Terminator movies. Yeah. Uh, as we transition into our first ludicrous lead-off <laughs> here. I mean, the, complete with the Arnold Schwarzenegger reference and everything, um, I hadn't really heard of this, but there is a company that, uh, a while back they reduced, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger when he was at his, you know, peak to a ghastly golem. And they also brought us another project called the Friendly But Dimwitted Times Square Diarrhea Probe. Um, yeah, they're basically a tech company. Uh, I think it's called, they're called Promobot. Yes. But uh- yeah, they're, they're, uh, <laughs> they're looking to, <laughs> Well, they're looking to do something ridiculous. They are. So they have put out a call, and they are seeking submissions, uh, entries, if you will, applications. There we go. Applications is the word I'm looking That's for. That's a good word, yep. Uh, from people to apply and be the face of their technology system. Now, you might think, okay, well, how, how's that going to work? How am I going to be the face? What exactly is required? Well... As per a press release put out by the company Promobot here, uh, it says in their press release at one point, quote, uh, we are seeking a face for a humanoid robot assistant, which will work in hotels, shopping malls, and other crowded places. The company is ready to pay out $200,000 to $200,000 to somebody willing to transfer the rights to use one's face forever. End quote. So they are seeking, again, a human face to be the face of their humanoid robot assistant. End yeah, quote. But they want your likeness forever. But you get $200,000. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, they're considering people of all genders and races over 25, so your odds seem to, uh, as, uh, Gizmodo, as, uh, Whitney Kimball of Gizmodo says, uh, your odds seem to hinge on this primary qualification presented on the website with this text. A candidate must have a kind and friendly face. So, um, so if you have an angry face, uh, keep, keep walking, not you, for you. If you have an unkind, unfriendly face, you are not in the running. If, if you look, uh, if you have a face that, uh, people have said to you in the past that, you know, you look like you have a very punchable face. Or, if people have kind of like questioned why you, why, what's upsetting you when you haven't been upset, maybe that's a sign that you don't have a kind and friendly face. Yes, if you have a, if you have resting upset face. Yes. Don't apply. So, yeah, uh, this, they are looking for, uh, basically, their human uh, face on whatever robot assistant. Now, we don't quite know how involved this robot assistant is going to be. We don't know if it's simply a T-800, a (laughs) T-1000, or even really just going to be the uh, an avatar on some some sort of touchscreen-based system. Yeah, so... That would be less threatening, but I'm also picturing, of course, T-1000s. Yeah, so I I guess the, the greater question now is... Would you give your likeness to some company to be able to use for all eternity, 
possibly hundreds of years after you're dead, for only $200,000. That doesn't seem like it's enough. No. I'm just going to throw it out there. I mean, $200,000, that's a big figure. That's going to get people's attention. That's, that's a big figure right now it in, is. in one lump sum. Yes. It's not an annual salary. No. You are not paid any sort of annual license fee or annual royalty for the use of your image in this uh, application that Promobot is looking to use it for. It is a one-time payout. As Think of it as uh, a scratch lottery ticket, except your face is going to be this thing forever. So if you do it, and, and uh, let's, let's be clear here, people will apply because of the kitsch factor of, oh my god, I might be this robot thing, ha ha ha. That's funny, uh, and I get might get two hundred thousand. Okay, sure, uh, do it for the lulls, the yucks, and perhaps with no concept of the greater implications. Yeah, and then also, here's the other kind of interesting thing. I'll just I'll, I'll read a few other maybe sketchy facts about this deal. What there are sketchy facts? <laughs> of course, this there has are. sounded on the up and up uh, the entire time. I don't know what you're talking about. So. Promobot as a company, they they are touting their facial recognition tech, and they're referencing new clients eagerly rushing to the to the human bots to market for a large scale project, and they need a licensed face to quote unquote avoid legal delays. So it's basically they need a face that they can use right now, that's free and in the clear. Uh, and they say this said client is an American company uh, that will be, quote-unquote, supplying solutions to airports, shopping malls, and retail stores, uh, all of which places where facial recognition is now common. Uh, in teeny tiny faint print below the press release, they mentioned that uh, the robots are used in Walmart, Baltimore, Washington Airport, and Dubai Mall, which, by the way, is not in America. No! <laughs> uh, and who says this? These are the people who brought you a coronavirus diagnostic robot using a touchscreen, just as they were. On, we were on the brink, you know, of uh, washing our money, uh, as they say in the Gizmodo article here. Uh, but yeah, further to this, Promobot claims to have been founded in Philadelphia. However, as a company, they're headquartered in Russia. Um, so. That doesn't really add up as something that sounds totally on the up and up, <laughs> right? No, it doesn't. And this also is not a company I've ever heard of before, Promobot. Yeah. Uh, uh, they, it's not like they're Boston Dynamics or anything where you know they're steeped in, in robot technology and advances of that nature, which for better or worse, mostly worse, um, you at least have some familiarity with. Yeah. This is a company called Promobot. Yeah. Which is a horrible name. It's a terrible name. And here's the other implication. If you give your likeness away to someone, basically sight unseen just for a bit of cash and they can do whatever they want with it, just think of what someone could do with your likeness. If it's scanned well enough, and they apparently do have good enough technology, just think of how good deepfakes are right now. They're pretty good. So, do you want to be have your face put into maybe some really unethical and or illegal videos? Uh, I'm not going to say particularly, you know, any specific examples, but just think of the worst thing you can think of that might end up on video. Would you want your face in there? Fair question to ask. The answer is probably no. It should be no. Yeah. It, well, it, it should definitely be no. 
For for the majority of us, the answer is going to be no. Uh, whether or not the people applying consider that, I don't know. Whether or not the people applying for this consider that they are literally signing over their likeness and voice. We yeah. have to point out, too, it is your voice. Yeah, yeah. The, the voice is part of it, and the voice does not have a separate... Um uh, fee or charge. There's no fee or charge for the voice. Like it's just literally. You're throwing that in on gratis. Yeah. So it's two hundred thousand dollars for everything: the face, the voice, and the uh, perpetual use of uh, your likeness and voice by this company. Yeah. So, like that's in perpetuity forever. Yes. Potentially. Yeah. For, if, for as long as the company exists. Like if Promobot becomes like the next major corporation who's around for, like, 200 years, do you want your face attached to weird, like, shilling nonsense for 200 years from now? Is that how your family's going to want to remember you? That's a, that's a question that can only be answered by the people uh, applying for this, because there will be people applying, or perhaps, you know, the kind of person who might apply for something like this is just so tech-enamored uh, that they don't really care about the... Con- Implications. I also do think that, like, that might not be even the case. I think the person who might apply for this is a person who needs money, which, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who just need money. Oh, yeah. Like, a $200,000 payday, it's not bad. And you li- you don't really have to do much work for it. No. You know, you're not being asked to uh, haul bricks endlessly or anything like that, or, uh, uh, you know, it's not customer service work, anything of that nature, it's just your image that you're not really doing much with anyway. Yeah. So 200,000. Yeah. But forever. Yeah, exactly. By this company that you don't really know what they're going to use it for, but it's some sort of uh front-facing uh, uh uh customer interactive type experience. I thought you were going to say it's some kind of a front and then leave it at that. Well, <laughs> I mean, chances are it you probably know, is. Uh, it's a little concerning that uh, it's going to be some sort of uh, front-facing uh, humanoid robot assistant, uh, apparently, again, going to work in hotels, shopping malls, and other crowded places. I'm just picturing someone, you know, being th- th- this company's version of uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger from, like, Terminator 2 or something. Yeah. Or whatnot, you know. They need the skin, they need a, an image uh, and likeness, so okay, well, you'll be that. And then eventually you'll just get grafted onto uh, metal exoskeletons. Yeah. Then eventually, you know, get sent back in time to kill Sarah Connor. Yes. Because she's the mother of the resistance who are railing against the machines, right? Exactly, yes. Yeah. So, so yeah, do you want that? Yeah. So, the... <laughs> This is part one of two ludicrous leadoffs that are just kind of like further proving that we're currently living in like a shitty cyberpunk dystopia right now. It's the Cur- worst possible version of a cyberpunk dystopia. Like right now, it's what we're living in. Like that's <laughs> like you. If you're like us and you would have read some of these science fiction, like you know, speculative future things in the past, you would have thought, yeah, but like that can't be what would happen, right? Like, surely there'd be some checks and balances along the way. No, as we found out, no, there aren't. No, those are gone away. No, and like, we're, we're fully here and it's happening and there's basically no one doing anything about it. We're left to our own devices. 
And another thought that just occurred to me about this promo bot deal about the face and, and you know, give over your likeness and your voice uh, for uh, until the end of time and you get paid $200,000, that's fine. Um, that price of $200,000 that someone's being paid, I'm going to argue that's probably the high point. As we go along in time and more and more of these companies like Promobot come up that need human images, the price point is going to come down. I'm going to argue. Well, either the price point is going to come down or there's going to be limits put on to, you know, what someone can do with someone else's likeness. Which there probably should be in place already. Yeah. You'd, you'd think you know. there, you'd think that there are slash should be, right? Like mm-hmm. just this goes beyond potential identity theft as well. Like anyways, I said part one of two of like, you know, proving that we're currently living in the shittiest version of a cyberpunk dystopian future, mm-hmm. which is quickly becoming the cyberpunk dystopian present. Yes. Um, another thing that we've really talked a bit about you know, in negative terms, a lot in the last, like, few months have been NFTs and a lot of, like, stuff coming out of, like, the crypto umbrella, you know, that was spawned out of, like, the Bitcoin rush of, like, 10 years ago. And it's just been kind of keeping going. Like, everyone in their dog literally has their own cryptocurrency. And, uh, you know, along with that comes, you know, more and more crazy ideas to basically try to change like you know the post scarcity aspect of the internet into something that has scarcity because you know some people just like to be able to say that they're the person that bought a thing and well this this next story it it just it further like really puts us down the slope that we're going down. Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's another story that just uh, sounds to me like pure scamminess. Like scammy, scammy scamminess. Uh, but this is a story about a real estate transaction that took place in the virtual world. Yeah. So this past week, the Canadian... Canadian investment firm known as Tokens.com announced that it had purchased 116 parcels of virtual land from a company called Decentraland. This uh, company, Decentraland, bills itself as the, quote, first ever virtual world that's owned by its users, end quote. Uh, that might sound nearly identical to past instances of virtual worlds, you know, like Second Life or things of that nature, but this company, Decentraland, notes that, quote, Unlike other virtual worlds, such as Second Life, it is not controlled by a centralized organization or company. Oh, so it's like, it's like Minecraft then, where you can have like your own world on your own server, and uh, you can have your friends on your own server then. Uh, possibly, but Minecraft is still owned by you know a central company. Right, right. Microsoft. Right. This decentralized, hence Decentraland. But you still have to buy land off someone. Yes, you would, yes. So it's not decentralized then. It's it's not quote unquote owned by the community if it's actually initially owned by someone else. Well, uh for tokens.com, the Canadian investment firm, they paid six hundred eighteen thousand mana, which is the Ethereum based token that Decentraland uses as its in world currency, and for that price of six hundred eighteen thousand mana uh, if you work it out to U.S. dollars, that means that Tokens.com spent $2.428 million on this transaction for 116 parcels of virtual land. 
And Token.com, uh, in the press release, they note that this is the largest transaction, quote, of its kind to date. So these parcels, the 116 virtual land parcels, they add up to roughly, uh, 6,100, just under 6,100 square feet of land, which is uh, a size slightly larger than your average basketball court. Uh, so, for some sort of reference, uh, in real life plots of land can vary wildly from city to city, county by county, state by state, things of that nature. But, uh, the average price per square foot in the U.S., uh, sits at $123. Yeah. So, in real world terms, using that average, this purchase of the virtual land would have cost $750,000 instead of the $2.4 million. Oh, oh, but according to uh, the press release here, uh, these aren't just, you know, any parcels of land, though. What? No, they're, they're you know, smack dab in what Decentraland people are calling the heart of the Fashion Street District and, quote unquote, will be developed to facilitate fashion shows and commerce within the exploding digital fashion industry. End quote. There's a digital fashion industry? I mean, I'm not surprised, but... Yeah, so what happens if the server just goes down? <laughs> Someone pulls the plug? Yeah. Well, guess your land goes bye-bye. Yeah. Like what is what even is all of this? <laughs> like this That's yeah. This is one one of the more bananas Nothing story I, I've come across in a long time. $2.4 million for what? For virtual land. But if it's all virtual, more land can be added pretty damn quickly. So I, I hate to say it, but I think in terms of like online money-making schemes, like all of these companies can learn something from the next people we're going to talk about, frankly, because at the very least, the next people we're going to talk about, they're developing a thing that eventually will become a game that people may be able to play. Will it, though? Are they, though? Are they? So, so let's be honest. Are they? I'm going to say no, but, you know, they... Anyways, wait, look. so if you want to make money these days, you obviously need to be doing and conducting business in the, the digital space. Either be doing uh, crypto this, crypto that, uh, NFT this, NFT that, selling virtual land, or selling people on the prospect that they'll be able to play in a very expansive space simulation. Yeah. That is truly uh, one of the four pillars of making crazy amounts of money these days. <laughs> as we are now going to talk about something that sounds to me as scammy scammy as that previous story sounded. It's it's a thing we've been talking on and off about for almost ten years on this program. It's a game, and I'm putting game in very loose quotation marks, because at this point we've seen sizzle reels... We've seen beta footage of people kind of playing a very beta-looking build of a game, but we haven't seen a real game. But this game is Star Citizen, 
it's a thing being developed by Robert Space Industries, which is a company made by, well, put together by a guy named Chris Roberts, who is the development chief of this Robert Space Industries. Uh, yeah, he did a lot of uh, space games for the PC platform back in the late 90s. Yeah, sorry, Cloud Imperium Games is his, is his company. Yeah. Robert Space Industries is sort of the... Uh, it's unclear how all these companies kind of fit together. Oh. <laughs> You know, Umbrella Corporation, you know, yeah, Shell, shell, shell Corporations, companies. Shell Companies, moving yeah. things around, LLCs, yeah. this and that. Numbered LLCs. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, Cloud Imperium Games, who I think is the parent company, you know, ha- they've so far raised a truly bananas amount of money. Um. <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you okay. I'm, I'm, t- I'm you're too flustered. You're so flustered. You can't continue on, and that's fine. I'm here. I got your back. Uh, because Star Citizen, as a as an experience, as a crowdfunding exercise, has continued to raise money from the from the crowd, yeah, and it's the idea of crowdfunding. But it crossed a very major milestone uh, about a week or two ago. At this point, uh, back on November nineteenth, the threshold that it crossed was that the total monies raised by this digital space experience, Star Citizen, had finally crossed the $400 million milestone. $400 million raised by Cloud Imperium Games, Robert Space Industries, Chris Roberts, uh, the other people at the very, very tippy top of this pyramid uh, of corporate structure. Of this pyramid that's been scheming to get a game out. Yeah, yes, uh, and all the people at the top of this pyramid, I'm sure, are working hard to uh, uh, get this game and are scheming ways to uh, make sure that it gets out and satisfies everyone who has put money into it, and they are simply taking no more than a reasonable amount for them to live on uh, and make a living wage and pay their staff a living wage, etc., etc., amen. So the tally of $400 million uh, comes from just over 3.3 million backers. This by information by way of the official Roberts Space Industries website. The game crossed the $400 million threshold on November 19th when it raised $877,891 that day. Uh, so it's, uh, impressive. The last big tally that it crossed, big milestone tally, was back in March when the game, it, sorry, the experience crossed the $350 million mark. So it raised $50 million in eight months. So. Oh, and, and let's be clear, as the article here from Wesley Yin Poole of Eurogamer notes, Star Citizen remains in alpha nine years after the initial crowdfunding effort began. I was just going to say here, I have the Kickstarter page pulled up. It says last updated April 6, 2013. Um, this is, let's just say it ended then. I mean, I think it actually ended far before then, but yeah, this was a Kickstarter project initially. Yes. Um, so within the span of like about a month, it raised $2.1 million dollars. Pretty you know, good. That's pretty good. Like, that's really good for a game. However, over the intervening eight, nine years since the Kickstarter campaign is wrapped up, it's been continuing to take, um, you know, funds from people at first through PayPal and then later just through like their own e-commerce store on their website where you can then buy 
ludicrously expensive ships and stuff that, you know, your character then owns in game. But like, as we've noticed in the past, all that that effectively means is that you've spent in sometimes in upwards of a hundred thousand dollars on just a 3d model that you get to look at. Uh, there are uh, ships that go for thousands of dollars and in some cases, Tens of thousands of dollars. And I think in one or two cases that I saw, a hundred thousand dollars, like more than a hundred thousand dollars. Like, I don't think I'm lying when I say I saw one for 120, which is insane. Who's buying these things? It's a little out there. Like, is, is this just a money laundering scheme at some point? Like, Chris Roberts has recently gone on record saying he doesn't think it's going to take them another 10 years to develop this game because, but, <laughs> You know, because it's been close to 10 since it's been funded and it's been worked on. Like, this game has a bigger budget than most AAA games at this point. This game has a bigger budget than a lot of big AAA movies. Yeah. So, like, when you look at the, all of the stuff that they want to put in the game, like, if they finish it, it could potentially be one of the best games you've ever played. Or, because it's got all these different things it wants to do, it might just be... a a shit show. Just an unfocused mess. Yeah. Which I'm leaning towards maybe that. Like, when you think about games with long development cycles like this, how many of them are actually ever, you know, good when they come out? Uh Rarely, if ever, does a game that has such a long development cycle live up to the expectation that's been built in the intervening years. So look at the example of Duke Nukem Forever. Exactly. 15, like, what, 15 years? It, wasn't it a 17-year development cycle? A stupid number. Yeah, it was a really long time. Yeah. Uh, and this is at risk of looking like it's going to be, you know, a similar thing. True. Uh It is getting there. Currently, the roadmap... Uh, a, in the article uh, from Eurogamer, they note that the current roadmap says that the game's three point, or sorry, the experiences, uh, I I am hard pressed to call it a game because it does not look like any game I've ever seen. But so I'll call it the experience. But the experiences three point one six update is due out by the end of this year. The three point one seven update is due out in the first quarter of twenty twenty two, and the three point one eight update tentatively set for release in the second quarter of 2022. No release windows beyond that at this point. Oh, and the Scope Creep second game of Squadron 42, remember that as well? Yeah, that was supposed to be like a a single player, like a big cinematic experience. Yeah, the the big campaign mode, essentially, of this game, like set in the Star Citizens universe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, well, according to Roberts as well, um, back in 2020, October 2020, Roberts did admit that uh, Cloud Imperium games, and I quote, still have a ways to go before Squadron 42 even hits beta. Uh, <laughs> it's Squadron 42 is currently seven years behind its original delivery target, and Squadron 42 was the scope creep spin-off game that they decided didn't make sense to actually include in Star Citizen. So the scope creep, ga- scope creep game is itself suffering scope creep. Yeah, it's seven years behind schedule. So if the if this offshoot game is seven years behind schedule, how far behind schedule is the actual game? In theory, th- this offshoot game, Squadron Forty Two, would have a more uh, refined scope, uh, a lesser scope, smaller scale scope than Squadron Forty Two itself, which is trying to be just an absolutely expansive space experience. 
Yeah, like, you'd think... Yeah, so you say, actually, we want to make this, like, very focused, single-player campaign. We're going to call it Squadron 42. Wouldn't you try to, like, wouldn't the point of spinning it off to be to reduce the scope of the main game, right? You'd think so. Or did that just free up the developers of the main game to then go in into different directions? Yeah. So, but, like... There should be a reason to do all of that, right? Like, the reason should never be to double your workload. <laughs> it should just basically be, you know what, we're just going to, like, if, I mean, I'm not Cloud Imperium Games. I don't know how to make $400 million in nine years. What am I talking about? Just take my words for a grain of salt. But you'd think that you would just say, okay, we're going to split that off into its own game. We're not even going to start developing that yet. So we're just going to nix all of that and do that separately after the main game comes out, yeah, right? after we delivered that which we said we would initially deliver. Yeah. Shouldn't that have been the thing? A, a fair question to ask. Uh, uh, to put it out there into the universe, obviously the people at uh, Cloud Imperium Games and Chris Roberts would be the better ones to ask and the uh, ones most knowledgeable in how they could answer. Oh, but also, a uh, fun little aside tidbit, earlier in the month of November, Cloud Imperium announced that uh, they had plans to open a huge new studio space in Manchester in England and become one of the UK's largest development houses. Uh, their office currently set to open in May of 2022 and rehouse the company's current 400-person team uh, that is currently based in Wimslow uh, and expanding, of course, uh, probably by the minute. Yeah. Well, I mean, if they're still able to pull in $50 million every eight months, like, as a company, I guess they're doing, like, something right. Yeah, you got a lot of runway. Yeah. To, uh, to, to work with before you just burn through your capital. Yeah, so, on the one hand, it's super frustrating, but on the other hand, if people are just gonna keep giving them money, how can I tell them they're wrong? No one's forcing the, the, the public to pay for these ships, pay for subscriptions and starter packs and anything that will fund the development of this game, quote unquote. Yeah. Development. Um. Game. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no one's, no one's got a gun to their head. No one's compelling anyone to pay thousands of dollars for these JPEGs of ships. Or any, anything of that nature. The 3D models, I think, yeah, of ships. Yeah, 3D models, uh, and whatnot. So, People are choosing of their own volition. That's fine. And uh, I think as we've talked about here on the program previously, when in regards to Star Citizen, I can't help but feel like a, in a lot of cases, it's the sunk cost fallacy. Maybe, yeah. That, uh, you know, I've put this much money towards the game. If I actually want to see any tangible end result, well, then I just need to keep putting more money into it. I do have to hand it to um, Cloud Imperium Games, though. I mean... If they were just something founded out of this one Kickstarter project, they've grown themselves to be a studio of 400 people in the past eight years. Mm -hmm. So I guess there's something to be said about whatever they're doing, even if it, if that thing is not releasing completed games, even though they're a game development company. Oh, can you imagine what it's like to be a developer on this? Like, you're, you're, you know, in software development and web development, and so you understand uh, projects and are very much a project-based uh, oh, yeah. person in your work. This is a project that has no end. No. That, that is frustrating. It's frustrating as hell. 
I mean, on the one hand, yeah, you, you want to make sure that like what you put out is not garbage and that, you know, people are happy with it and you've covered any sort of like edge cases that might come up in terms of like user experience and things like that. And you won't, you don't want to put out a bug riddled mess. You don't want to basically, you know, go the accidental route of hello games when they put out no man's sky, for example, like, but on the other hand, like you still want to put something out like, Mm -hmm. and the whole problem I'm seeing is like, when I look at like all the stuff they want to do, it literally looks like, Oh, that'd be cool. Let's do it. Oh, that'll be cool. Let's do it. Oh, that'd be cool. Let's do it without really thinking of like, what does let's do it mean for all of these other things you've said, let's do it too. Like, like there's, there's an idea like called, you know, single piece flow that, you know, some that you kind of pick up on in software development after a certain point where it's like, if you're at a more higher up position, you kind of have to like, say, no, actually, the more stuff that's in progress just means that there's more stuff out there that's work in progress and not done. How do we look to getting stuff done? The way to get stuff done is to focus on one thing at a time. Like, you might think you can focus on five or six things at a time, but, like, all you're doing is splitting your focus. And those five or six things are only getting 20 per... Like, if, if you're working on five things at once, if you consider your focus a bucket that has a hundred percent of a thing in it, you're splitting it five ways. And like each one of those five ways of split is not actually the full 20%, right? Nope. Like you, <laughs> like there, every time you switch between a thing, there's also the context shift that you have to think about. Like it's like, Oh, well I was working on this one thing, but now I'm working on this totally different thing. So now I need to just kind of like put my brain back in that, and that's more wasted time and more wasted effort and stuff. Like, why don't you just finish one thing? Like, I can understand if, like, you can only bring a thing so far because it relies on another thing. But those other things should become apparent, right? Like, I might be oversimplifying things here. And I'm not, you know, again, I'm not the chief technology officer of a $400 million company. But still, you know, like, there's something wrong here if they haven't released the actual... The actual game, and if their side game is seven years off schedule, like, that's... Not even in beta. Yeah. Which means they aren't uh, ready enough for testing. Yeah. Still early development, roughly eight years on from the initial campaigns, if not longer. Yeah. Eight to ten years after the initial campaigns. I mean, to be fair, maybe this Squadron 42 slash single-person campaign was never initially in the cards. It could have been an idea that popped up just in the last couple of years. <laughs> well, no, obviously not. Like, if if they said it's seven years behind, it sounds like it was an idea that popped up maybe a couple of years into funding, mm-hmm. where they're like, oh, we should have a single-player campaign. They probably started developing it a little bit, and then started deciding, maybe it doesn't make sense for this to be in the game. Maybe it should be its own game, because it's making the main game too complicated. Okay, but, like... Focus on one, right? Like, put all of your efforts towards one. Make the one work first. Put the one out, and then, like, once it's out, then you can reduce the team. Like, make it more of, like, you know, like a maintenance project where, like, take all of your main, you know, big players off of that project once it's out there, and then you're just into kind of, like, maintaining, fixing bugs, like, you know, adding minor updates. Then, you know, bring all the creative effort over to the new thing at that point, but only when you've got something out. Like, what are you doing? But again, 
I say this also, you know, just like from the, the aspect of someone who's mostly worked on projects that have to get out to make money. This is an entirely flabbergasting situation to me where they, it doesn't matter if they put anything out because they're making $50 million every eight months. They're making $50 million every eight months from the public. There's no venture capital backing that we know of. Yeah. Like if, if they, this was a company looking to go public and their aim was to make money and be a good capitalist company, which in theory they're trying to be by taking people's money, but you know, with no end product or end date yet in sight, uh, any sort of company that takes, uh, series A, series B, whatever kind of funding, they have to present to their backers a plan to eventually release. You know, things will happen along the way. We adjust and pivot from the plan accordingly. As things come up, you know, new technologies are released. You, you have personnel issues, whatever the case might be. Shit happens along the way. Everyone knows and realizes that. So you adjust your, your, adjust your plans accordingly. But you have a plan. You have an aim. You have a timeline for release. Yeah. The backers want to know when they can start getting their money back. Or like getting the thing they paid for. Yeah. Uh, from, you know, in the case of like a venture capital backer, they want to know when this thing will be out there so they can be reimbursed. Yeah. When will I start seeing my investment pay out and, you know, pay off? Yes. Pay dividends? Yes. You know, like when will I, when can you start paying me back for this investment I made? You know. In your company, in, in you and your company and yeah. your product. It's like you're not giving me confidence in why I gave you money. And I think in no small part, that's why Cloud Imperium and Chris Roberts and everyone at the tippy top of this pyramid uh, of corporate structure can still continue on with no real end date in sight. They yeah. don't have to answer to anyone. Yeah, which is, you know, again, fair enough. That's like, the structure that's been developed. Like, I'm flabbergasted by this, but then I also, like, again, I've... I'm saying, hey, they're doing something right if they keep making money. It's just not something I understand. No. Uh, and it's stories like this and also the previous one about the the virtual plot of land selling for $2.4 million really makes me wonder if we live in a time when just the value of money is increasingly meaning- meaningless. Yeah. People throwing their money literally away for virtual land. Which could be deleted and, and taken offline in a couple of keystrokes. Yeah. Uh, there's no scarcity of land. If it's virtual, more can always be created. Yeah. Control C, control V. Literally. Like, I know I'm grossly oversimplifying this, but you know I'm kind of right. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. Like, buy, an, buy a second hard drive, put it right beside the first hard drive, and then copy... It twice. Now you have twice as much. That's how digital stuff works, right? True. Like, it's a true fact. So, and in the case of, uh, Star Citizen, yeah, there, there's no real tangible game yet. You just keep pumping out ships. Is, and you, and you, this a, and you talk about all the cool stuff you're gonna have in the game, but we don't know how far along each of these, like, um, swim lanes are in terms of completion. Mm hmm. Like, there's 400-person workforce that uh, currently is employed by Cloud Imperium to work on Star Citizen. Are 350 of them artists? Just all working on concept art for ships? I mean... To be sold? I have no doubt that... That people are working on stuff, and I have no doubt that the game is being worked on. I just have doubts that it's, you know, 
ever going to properly come out and that, you know, the people managing this whole thing aren't going to keep thinking of new things to add, right? Like, mm-hmm. it, it basically becomes, like, analysis paralysis at a certain point. But as long as people keep giving them money, again, who am I to fault them? It's true. And the funding model has proven they don't need to produce a game. Yeah. Like, so, <laughs> if anything, it behooves them to not release the game and keep making $50 million every eight months. Yeah, and then at some point when that kind of dries up, then they can release the game and start making money that way. Or at the very least, go to beta and, you know, increase the, the progress that way as well, and then eventually a full release. Maybe. We'll see. But uh, So yeah, Star Citizen, uh, in case you missed it, has raised over $400 million now. That milestone of $400 million being crossed earlier in the month of November. Yeah. Good God. Good God indeed. So you remember, uh, uh, perhaps you've seen it in movies, uh, before when, uh, a character just is, is demonstrated to be so rich they just don't care about money. I think Chris, Krusty the Clown has done it. They'll light a cigar with like a hundred dollar bill. Yep. That kind of feels like where we're at now in society with some, in some aspects. Just people literally burning money because they have no regard for it, no care, and it's, uh, it's meaningless. It's worthless and pointless to them. So, They'll just burn it all, but at le- there's at least one company out there in the world who does still understand the value of money. That's Epic Games. Yeah. They see the money coming in from Fortnite uh, and a little bit from the Epic Game Store and uh, this, that, and the other thing, uh, but uh, they have at least uh, uh, spent some of their money on a tangible product. Yeah, well, a kind of a product. I mean, you if you want to consider buying another company a product, yes then yes, it's a thing that they purchased. But it's a tangible thing that they purchased. A tangible thing with real people that is going to do work and uh, produce for them. Har- uh, Epic Games announcing this week that they have acquired Harmonix. Yeah, so if you remember them, I mean, it might have been a few years since you've heard the name Harmonix in the context of uh, you know, video games. But yeah, they were the ones who were responsible for Rock Band. And uh, a lesser known title from last year called Fuser, which was like a little music mixing thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, they were required by Epic Games to quote unquote create musical journeys and gameplay gameplay for Fortnite. So Fortnite's getting Guitar Hero <laughs> type functionality. <laughs> See, Fortnite is, I think, the model that Cloud Imperium Games should have aspired to with you know their game. Put out a game that's narrow in focus, Mm -hmm. and then add stuff onto it once it's out and making you money, legitimately, through, like, ways that aren't going to piss off, you know, various trade commissions and stuff. True. Like, when... My big question, like, not, not to loop back to, you know, Cloud Imperium games too much here, but how long before, you know, they get nailed by some government agency for basically... Acquiring funds through some sort of shady means. Uh, that's a good question. I I don't know. Uh, that's a bigger question than what I can answer. But uh, ultimately, it would take someone filing a complaint with some sort of uh, government authority agency. Yeah, and if they're making fifty million in eight months, the people who are giving their money seem perfectly content to. And they can hire good lawyers. Yes, with $400 million, you can do a lot of things. Like hire the best lawyers and litigate uh, anyone uh, away. Yeah. 
and just make things happen and disappear and uh, and whatnot. So uh, that's Ep- uh, that's Cloud Imperium Games, but Epic Games, yeah, uh, they're engaged in their own legal uh, uh, tussles with <laughs> Apple and whatnot. So they're yeah. they're diverting some of their attention to that as well. Yeah, they have their own David and Goliath story happening right now, where they're definitely not Goliath. <laughs> No, they they are Goliath's much older, much bigger brother. <laughs> yeah. Taking on an even bigger Goliath. No, I mean they're not well yeah. Yeah. I, I guess like they are a seventeen billion dollar company taking on a two trillion dollar company. So yeah. they're not David. No, they are they're not David. They're maybe Goliath taking on the entire Galactic Federation, perhaps? <laughs> I I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Don't know how to expand that scope there. Yeah. Anyways, uh, in that parable, but in between, you know, fighting with Apple, you know, fighting the quote unquote good fight, if you want to call it that, which, yep. you know, it could be argued that they're doing that. They're doing other things as well. You know, still trying to keep Fortnite relevant because as we all know, Fortnite is their cash cow. Oh, frankly. absolutely. And, uh, when that's going, you want to keep it well fed. You want to keep it fat and happy and producing as much and as possibly it can. Uh, and so they are acquiring, acquiring harmonics to, uh, really flesh out the soundscape of Fortnite. Uh, harmonics is still actually going to be doing, uh, work themselves. Uh, apparently they are going to continue on with season 25 of Rock Band Rivals, uh, and, uh, releasing DLC for Rock Band as well. They will continue with their current plans for Fuser events. Uh, and the company, Harmonics, says they won't be changing the way they support their older games, so, meaning that this acquisition by Epic Games won't result in any sort of game servers being being taken offline or other existing title, titles disappearing from Steam or consoles anytime soon. And as for their future, Har- Harmonix has said that uh, they will be working with Epic Games to, quote, create musical journeys and cl- gameplay for Fortnite, which uh, could possibly involve more big events like the ones they've done for uh, Ariana Grande, I think, what, Travis Scott's, uh, any sort of, like, big epic-type concert event that has happened in Fortnite. Yeah. So, no exact details on price points uh, for the acquisition were released, uh, but it's a, it's a few shekels. Yeah, the, this type of thing wouldn't have gone cheaply. No, it would not have gone cheaply, and uh, uh, good for Harmonix. The, uh, I, I hope everyone there gets a nice, fat Christmas bonus. Yeah. Which, uh, little did I know when, until I started reading this article, Harmonix actually was founded in 1995. Now, most often when we think of harmonics, we think of them, uh, from the mid 2000s, the heyday of music games. They were, uh, them and Red Octane were the ones who worked on the first two Guitar Hero games before, uh, I believe Red Octane was acquired by Activision. Guitar Hero then went and became an Activision franchise. Harmonics split off, started the Rock Band franchise. Yeah. And there were music game wars and no one won. Exactly. Everyone uh, the, was the, the shrapnel was just plastic instruments yeah, everywhere. The earth lost with all the added extra <laughs> plastic garbage that it now is added to our, you know, landfills. Landfills yeah. and you know that toxic garbage island in the ocean kind of thing. Exactly. Anyways, uh but yeah, Harmonics goes back to 95, you know, you might have played some of their PS2 era games like Frequency and Amplitude. Uh Amplitude was the bigger one mm-hmm. for sure. Uh fast-paced Kind of racing games, from what I recall, like yeah. pod racer style. They were kind of fun, yeah. But yeah, they've they've been around for a while, so they're not strictly tied to the music thing. So it'll be very interesting to see 
if they've basically just become the music division of, you know, Epic Games for Fortnite, or if they're still going to be allowed to make new games, they're probably, they're a whole development company, so you'd think that they're going to be maybe more, given a little bit more leeway than that, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, certainly. So uh, the the announcement just made this week, uh, any sort of future uh, releases from Harmonix still yet to be announced, and those will come in the, in the weeks, months, and years ahead. But uh, speaking of years... Uh, we have mentioned in a blast from the past, uh, I think last week, if not week before, I think it was two, uh, two episodes prior, uh, that the original Xbox console turned 20 years old this year. Yeah. That big fat computer under your TV that was the Xbox turned 20 years old. The big chunky black box with the, just the big gaudy X right on top. Yeah. That, that uh, was still very much steeped in the late 90s industrial uh, design aesthetic of, you know, attitude and brashness and... Yeah, almost like brutalist in its um, approach where it's just big, hard lines, lots of like... Sharp angles. Lots of sharp angles, sharp like grating and stuff on the fronts and, you know, the sides and like lots of like... What looks to be almost like heat sinks that are exposed, basically, mm-hmm. like that type of thing. Minimal contrast in terms of uh, uh, color wheel, yeah, uh, or or color usage. I mean, well, with the exception of the company logo, that's always a stark different color. Like with the PlayStation, it was like a blue. Mm-hmm. Like if we think about the PlayStation Two, it was like this weird blue on top of this black device. Yes. Whereas, like you know, the Nintendo GameCube, similar kind of pedigree, big black box. Uh, Nintendo logo was just kind of like a white splash. Yeah. So like in the black circle on the top of the GameCube. Although at yeah. least with the GameCube, it came in purple and silver as well. Yeah, they they came out with other colors for yeah. sure. But yeah. Uh, but the Xbox stark black, like jet black. Yeah. You know, as Nathan Explosion would say, uh, blacker than the black is black times infinity. <laughs> yes, as Spinal Tap would say, none more black. That's true. Uh, just with some lime green contrast right on top, and yeah, that system, 20 years old, and uh, our last couple stories here, uh, really about how Microsoft is taking the time and putting effort into celebrating their history and the 20th anniversary of the original Xbox console. And I feel like they're doing a pretty bang-up job, not just of these few events, but it feels like they've had drips and drabs, just a lot of maybe smaller scale events through the course of the year or just items and things that uh, may have come up. Uh, you know, I think they've done a sneaker collab with uh, another shoe company. Uh, I believe there was a commemorative uh, controller design as well. Uh, but a couple of news items of uh, just recent times, what they're doing to mark the occasion, 20 years of the Xbox, I guess 20 years since the original console, but also 20 years of the Xbox brand. Yeah. Which is also another interesting thing to note. Yeah. It's literally called the Xbox Game Division. Yeah. So, because, well, when it first started, no one really thought of that. They just thought, oh, it's Microsoft doing video games now. Mm -hmm. That's what we all thought. It was like, oh, Microsoft is making this thing called the Xbox. Okay, so Microsoft is in the video game industry now. No, now we actually think it's like the Xbox division of Microsoft. Yeah. So that's that distinction that's happened over the last 20 years, which is... Who would have known that it, you know, we'd be thinking this way now about it, but. Yeah, it is one of the main pillars of, uh, the tent of Microsoft. There's the 
I guess software or well, I guess more specifically like the OS side, uh, the software side, I guess the office suite tools, the like the business Azure cloud division. Yeah, as well as, you know, the open source commitments they have through GitHub and things like that. Uh, yeah. And Minecraft, I guess, is also probably another one of those pillars. Or arguably. would that just be a, a sub-pillar under the uh, games division brand? Would it be? They that's, did pay like $2 billion for it a few years ago. That's true, they did. So, And, and well, yeah, it is uh, a, a pillar that uh, is on multiple platforms, so it's not just their own console. So. Yeah, mind you, Microsoft as a company, too, is one of those companies I think their market cap is around a trillion dollars as well. So it could be that it just is rolled up under the Xbox division as well. I might just be, you know, unaware. It's not just might be. I'm definitely unaware of the Microsoft corporate structure. But uh what? You're not? Well, are you? Yeah, I got the investor newsletter at home. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, yeah, I, I own a, a, a paltry amount of shares in Microsoft. <laughs> yeah. Paltry amount. Like, there's like 50 million shares out there. I, I own a... Like... <laughs> Five? <laughs> yes. Okay. So <laughs> some amount like that. <laughs> yeah, something like that. And but because I own shares, I get the the investor information, like basically the annual reports and everything like that. So f- funny side story. I uh, get the little pamphlet uh, in the mail with you know the thick book. I always want the physical copy. <laughs> Tell them, let the company spend the money and print yeah, things for me. Exactly. I say the same thing to all of my stock things. <laughs> Yes, I would like all the information. Yes, in triplicate if possible. Why, yes, I bought one stock for $7. I want the full catalog of all your stuff, of course. <laughs> and so the pamphlet comes for, I guess, uh, the the annual Microsoft shareholder meeting that's coming up. Either, you know, happened already or it's coming up sometime in December. And uh, there's the usual stuff of like, oh, you know, uh, check these boxes to, uh, uh, you know, vote for who you want on the board of directors, blah, blah, blah. There's these motions that have been put forward, blah, blah, blah. And for each one, the company has its recommendation of how you should vote. I, of course, vote opposite to that. <laughs> Because why not? Because you're a contrarian and you think it's funny and you also know that it'll make no difference. Goddamn right, I do. <laughs> uh, but there's also was also a section that came up where uh, you can submit a question. Uh, I don't know if it would actually end up being selected and asked uh, at the annual shareholder meeting, but you can submit a question, you know, about the direction of the company, what it's done, what it did in the past year, things of that nature. I, being given an open platform and being me. <laughs> did not ask anything pertinent to the company's business, the company's outlook, uh, what it did in the past year, uh, anything of that nature. I, being me, took a creative direction. And given the open open box to, to type in my question and whatnot uh, and fill out my question, again, don't know if it's going to be asked at the shareholder meeting. If it is, fantastic. If not, yeah, that's fine too. Shot in the dark. So the shot in the dark question I put forward was... Uh, I believe it was something to the effect of, in your opinion, does a hot dog count as a sandwich? (laughs) Yes, of course. (laughs) One of the great classic stupid questions that you can think of, you know. So I don't know if it's going to be asked. If it is, I would I would love to know if you are out there listening as well and uh, will be tuning in to some portion of the Microsoft shareholder meeting for you also have shares, you share in shares, or whatever the case might be. Uh, email us, info at thearcadeshow.com, or hit us up on social media at the arcade show on all the evil platforms. 
Yes, of course. But uh, back to the Xbox division of Microsoft. Uh, I did not ask them their thoughts on hot dogs and sandwiches, but they are too busy marking the 20th anniversary of the original Xbox and also just 20 years of Microsoft being a, a true, honest-to-God game maker in the console space. One really neat thing that uh, came out just a couple days ago prior to the release of this episode was the... Almost uh, gorilla, or more specifically, surprise uh, shipments that some people had been receiving of what Microsoft was calling keepsake kits. So people who had previously registered to attend the Xbox Fan Fest, I guess Microsoft still had all their information, you know, name, address, all that stuff, uh, mailing address, and Microsoft was sending these people in the mail basically thank you packages. You know, thank you, uh, gift, uh, and, and, uh, welcome package, or not welcome packages, but just thank you gift baskets, which included a Halo-themed Xbox Series X slash S controller, a subscription for, good for 12 months of Xbox Game Pass Ultimate, as well as a crystal plaque that was laser etched with that individual's Xbox gamer tag. So also included in this thank you package was a note that read, quote, as a thank you for being a part of the 20 years of Xbox, we're gifting you this FanFest 20 years of Xbox keepsake kit. This is a limited edition kit created for randomly selected Xbox FanFest fans to commemorate our journey from past, present, and future as an Xbox community. We have included a... 20 years of Xbox Crystal, this is engraved with your gamer tag. We extend our gratitude to you for being a part of the Xbox community, the reason for this journey. End quote. So that is what the note reads in this thank you package that people have been randomly receiving. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. I mean, they also use it as an opportunity to further uh, advertise... Oh, by the way, it's also Halo's 20th anniversary by Halo Games. Yeah, yeah, Halo Infinite comes out December 8th. But, uh, you know, even so. <laughs> yeah, so, no, that's pretty cool. I mean, like, to just basically be a uh, Xbox, you know, member, like, yeah, who has signed up for FanFest. Fan- yeah. yeah. So, that, like, that's, that's pretty cool. I mean, I'd be... I'd be happy just to see a random video game controller that I didn't buy just show up. Yeah. I mean, they're not super cheap, so that that's it's cool. Absolutely. Uh, and out of the blue, th- it's this wasn't announced as a promotion that the company was engaging in. Yeah, exactly. Th- there wasn't a, a call out for people to sign up to this. It just is something they started doing on their own on the down low. And how do you feel about that as a shareholder? You know what? It's building goodwill. Okay. <laughs> it's engendering goodwill with the community and uh, keeping a devoted base uh, in your midst, in your ecosystem. I was really hoping you'd go the other route and be, well, I'm super mad about this waste of money. <laughs> Just the hard line, like, why are we spending money on anything good or fancy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> why are we spending money on people's lunches? They should bring their own lunches to work. <sighs> We're using three ply toilet paper? Three ply. Three ply. I'm sorry. This is, you know. How fancy is your ass? <laughs> you know what? Knock them down to two ply. Yeah. And if anyone's, uh, you know, put on any sort of disciplinary program, one, one ply. ply. <laughs> also, we need strict, strict counts of how many squares they use. <laughs> 
Just like, oh, this is the worst place I've ever worked in my life. Great. So we need a uh, toilet paper check. Basically, after uh, each use, each time someone goes in to use the bathroom, uh, we can do the calculations of how many uh, how many squares were used, and uh, we'll uh, if it's more than the daily average, we'll start charging people. Yeah, yeah. We'll just take it off their paychecks. Yes, the TP fee. <laughs> that, that, uh, the that's TP the fee. <laughs> the line that will appear on their pay stub. You know, yeah. deductions, local, you know, state taxes, city taxes, federal taxes, TP fee. <laughs> Good. Yes, good. Uh, but that's, you know, random gift boxes aren't the only way that uh, Microsoft is celebrating the 20th anniversary of the Xbox. I mean, it'd be weird if there were. <laughs> yeah. Just random, unsolicited, unmarketed things. Just guerrilla-style sending out things. This is the only way we're celebrating this. And then we're moving on. I wonder if uh, there were some people who received these boxes randomly in the mail. Maybe you were leery about opening it and maybe just put it in back in the trash because uh, they didn't order anything from Microsoft. This is a mistake. Yeah. But maybe there wasn't even a return address. It's like, yeah. how does this person have my address? <laughs> you know what? This is sus. I- it's going in the garbage. I'm not <laughs> yes. opening it. Exactly. <laughs> well, also, why did Microsoft have people hand scrawl the addresses in blood? Yeah, in blood. <laughs> that was a mistake. Yeah, real exactly. mistake. Exactly. <laughs> but although by using the employee's blood, it saves on sharpies. So, as a shareholder, I'm happy for that. Yes, as a shareholder, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but another way it means that uh, Microsoft used my money too. Uh, celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Xbox is they launched a virtual museum. Yeah. It is a browser-based experience that uh, allows you, as uh, some weird Xbox-type avatar, to uh, basically walk through this experience uh, and just see some of the, the major stories and happenings through the past 20 years of Xbox being a, a brand and system. So there's objects you can go see and uh, read the little info cards about. Uh, there's also various videos you can uh, watch and learn more about. But there's also an area that is for Xbox owners and will be very interesting to especially long-time uh, Xbox owners because uh, Microsoft has an area where you'll be able to pull up, uh, I guess, or in- input your gamer tag or whatever way, and pull up your gamer stats for the entire time you've been playing on Xbox systems or, yeah. or Microsoft systems. And there's a couple of very interesting stats you can pull from that. Like, when was the very first time you ever turned on your original Xbox? And how much time... What's the biggest time sink of the last 20 years in terms of video games? Mm-hmm. Which game have you put the most amount of time into? And yeah, of course, because it's web-based, browser-based, all of these things are shareable... There's a shareable link you that I'm sure we'll start seeing pop up on social media mm-hmm. for people to you know brag of, <laughs> brag or be feel ashamed about how much time they've wasted over the last twenty years. <laughs> it's like oh you spent a real lot of time in that uh, Banjo Kazooie nuts and bolts game, eh? It's like, uh, hmm. that's an uncomfortable amount. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but there's other areas where you can uh, learn about the the timeline of events through the through the life cycle of the Xbox. You can go through the Xbox 360 era, and actually, even in that era of the Xbox 360, Microsoft doesn't really uh, sugarcoat things. There's uh, an area where you can learn more about the Red Ring of Death uh, problems that befell the first 
batches of the Xbox 360. Yep. You can also read and learn more about and relive the the reveal of uh, Project uh, Natal, that which eventually became the Kinect. When Microsoft saw that, uh, hey, you know, motion controls were a big thing, so let's release a camera and try to capitalize on the popularity and sales success of the Wii, etc., etc. Uh, learn more about the launch of the Xbox Live Arcade. And I, I have seen people find and share online images of a letter that Microsoft actually sent to Nintendo uh, to try and arrange a meeting in the long ago days, uh, where, where Microsoft had interest in acquiring Nintendo. And they apparently got laughed out of the room. Yeah. Not just laughed out, laughed for the entire meeting. Yeah. Like it was a two hour meeting of just, you're dumb, this is stupid. Let's say, ha 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 ha, this is funny. What are you, what are you talking about? Are you, you serious? You silly Americans. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, a funny footnote in history, a, a funny story, Real shitty experience if you were a Microsoft rep in there. Oh, yeah. Like, you're doing what you're told. You quite likely know this is a stupid thing, but your higher-ups are telling you to, so what can you do? Yeah, exactly. Y- you gotta go in there and just uh, take one for the team. Yeah. That's all you, all you could do, but perhaps that will be something covered in uh, a documentary series that Microsoft is launching on the history of the Xbox. This is another means of celebrating the 20 years of Xbox, the console, and both the brand. Uh, Microsoft is launching this six-part series. It is called Power On, The Story of Xbox. It's going to start streaming on December 13th across a variety of video platforms, including Roku, IMDb TV, YouTube, Redbox, and more. Uh, again, Redbox, not RedTube. That's different. <laughs> Good God. Uh, this is apparently being produced by a, quote, Emmy award-winning production team, although no specific names were mentioned uh, in the press release. Uh, fans who uh, signed up for Xbox Fan Fest will get an early viewing of this documentary series, and apparently this uh, all began a couple years ago and was announced as the Xbox anniversary celebration, so it's going to cover everything for the history of their Microsoft uh, console from conception to more recent successes, uh, the, I'm sure it goes up to and includes the launch of the Xbox Series X and Series S. And, uh, yeah, so something to uh, look forward to. Not mentioned in there, Netflix, um, Disney+, Plus, uh, you know, some of the more major streaming sites. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, yeah. YouTube is enough, though. YouTube is enough. Roku's, in, yeah, I mean, like, the Roku is actually surprising. I mean, not, I'm not trying to sell anyone on a Roku thing, but, you know, I have a Roku, and I finally checked out that Roku channel, and for a free channel, there's a ton of stuff in there. Really? Yeah. Is it just pure content library? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I mean, had no idea. I, I I watched that uh, documentary, the Deep Space Nine documentary that was crowdfunded a couple of years ago. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. It, it's available through there, so I figured, oh, cool. All right. Nice. Yeah. So I mean, if at the very least, if you were a Deep Space Nine fan like I am, uh, and you were and you wanted to watch that documentary but forgot it existed, as happens. Uh. Yeah, uh, you can check it out through there. So, all right, very neat. Uh, I was unaware. Yeah, uh, I uh, I think this will be the first time Microsoft has released a documentary since the uh, gate. Oh, was it Game Over? The uh, the uh, documentary on ET. Yeah, I, the, I think that's what it was. The yeah. Atari game. Yes, that they actually released 
through their Xbox uh, video channels for download as a free download. Yeah. Back when they were still kind of interested in having unique and specific content. And that was going to be the first one in, I guess, their plans for a lot of, uh, you know, unique to them, specific to them content. And then that uh, fell by the wayside. Yeah. As happens. So, yeah, uh, kudos and credits to Microsoft for, uh, making these efforts to actually mark and celebrate the 20th anniversary of the Xbox. Uh, it is a pretty comprehensive approach they're taking, I say. Yeah, I mean, in terms of other companies celebrating things, I mean, well, especially for big companies like Microsoft who don't really necessarily need to worry about Fanning things like this, because in the grand scheme of Microsoft's history, the Xbox really isn't that Im- that big of a thing. No, like it, it, I'd say it's not impactful, but there's been a pretty significant impact in the video game industry. Whether or not that that has actually been a major pillar in Microsoft's overall wealth, I don't know. I don't know what kind of level the Xbox has had towards that, but. Yeah, in terms of, you know, big companies basically just celebrating their own history, this does feel kind of also like a little bit less culty in a way. It does. Uh, It's less, uh, you know, come love our company, that's it, drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, like I I, want to use Disney as an example because Disney fets stuff all the time, but it really feels like you're (laughs) – whenever Disney fets a Disney thing, it feels like you're like – they're like, oh yes, welcome to the cult. Here, here's your robes. You're like, uh, I just want to. It's like, hello and welcome to jo- join us, brother. <laughs> join us, brother Mike. You're like, uh, I would like to just watch a little bit of history of you know Mickey Mouse and stuff, and that's it. Can yep. I just, can I just see the little bit of history? Like, that's it. I, I don't want to like be basically indoctrinated into a weird cult. Thanks. Oh no, I, I found in looking through, uh, Disney Plus, the, the online streaming service that, uh, uh, I'm enjoying a promo month for, for only $2 for the month, that's fine. Uh, but just looking through, like, some of the more, uh, Disney-centric, uh, documentaries that they've made, but, you know, behind the scenes stuff about the construction of some of the rides, or, or some of the behind the scenes of stuff on, like, some of the Pixar movies or stuff like that, interesting to me. Yeah. But I can't help but look at it and feel like there's this culty, just propaganda vibe to everything. Yeah, like what? Like there's another side to this that we're missing that we're not getting because it's not objective. No, nope, not. It's not like someone else did. It was released in theaters, and you're just carrying it now. You're doing it on your own. It's also like all of the WWE produced wrestling documentaries. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're they're good. Oh, yeah, they have a lot of good information in them, but. At the end of the day, it, it's always, you know, oh, and eventually we welcome Jake the Snake Roberts back. It's like, yeah, but, like, you also kicked him to the curb for 20 years when he had a drug problem and did nothing to help him. Mm-hmm. Where's that part of the story? Like, you talk a little bit about it. It was up to Diamond Dallas Page to help him, but where was WWE? Like, where's the, where was that? Where was you helping him then? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I think... Uh uh, even in more recent years, uh, a good example, too, of that, The Ultimate Warrior. 
Uh, oh yeah, they did a doc- documentary thing about Ultimate Warrior and, and how he was a revolutionary and blah blah blah, ignoring the fact that whenever uh, that the first time they did like a DVD set and documentary about him, they shit all over him. Yep, it, and it was literally called like the breakdown of the Ultimate Warrior or something like that, and people just talking the whole time about how nuts he was because he was nuts. Yeah, he was an insane man. He le- he legally changed his name to. Warrior. Single name, no first name, last name. His legal name before he died was Warrior. He believed his gimmick. Yeah. And he He wasn't playing a character. He was nuts. He was absolutely nuts. Yeah. If you, you, if you want objective wrestling documentaries, I highly recommend watching Dark Side of the Ring. Yeah. Really good stuff. Really well done. You actually get stories from people not in WWE, but who were there. And you get both sides of it. You even get the the side of kayfabe, and you get the side of breaking kayfabe, and you get to see where the... Like, you get to kind of, like, draw your own conclusion of where the truth is. Like, whereas, like, you're not fed some truth from one side. Good documentaries aren't supposed to really do that. Like, they're supposed to just present you the information, right? Oftentimes, WWE stuff will sanitize history. Yeah. Or just kind of gloss over or minimize certain parts that, you know, like, oh, hey, like Vince McMahon actually was on trial in the 80s for uh, steroids and steroid rings and whatnot. Yeah. His World Bodybuilding Federation, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah, and, you know, when you look at all the rampant, like, not to continue down this wrestling rabbit hole, but if you look at all, like, various bodybuilders and wrestlers of a certain vintage now are all dying, because of, like, you know, heart problems that were clearly caused by steroid abuse. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Perhaps or, tacitly promoted or, or you know, welcomed. Or, or really strongly encouraged with a, if, you know, a veiled, not an explicit threat of being out of a job if you don't, but, hey, you know... Big bodybuilder-looking wrestlers might do better in the WWE. Yeah, they get pushed to the top. Yeah. You, you as a, a smaller uh, aerialist, uh, you know. Yeah. Or, you know, if you're just a bigger guy who has, like, you know, a gimmick, that only takes you so far. If you're a bigger guy with a gut or something. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, maybe you should uh, ship up or shape out. Or, you know, shape up or ship out. Yes. You know, whatever. However it's actually said. Yes. Anyways, but yeah. But, yeah. Our, our whole point is, like... This feels less culty like those instances. Yes, very much so. And it feels like it's a separate uh, company, you know, doing the Microsoft documentary as opposed to, like, their own in-house team. Yeah. So, good. Good on Microsoft for for doing all these efforts and making all these efforts to uh, celebrate their 20 years of, of history. I thought you were going to say sobriety. <laughs> My brain just filled in sobriety, and I thought... What? Oh, that's not what he said. Good. That's a big chip they were taking as a company to to mark their 20 years of sobriety. Good yes. on them. Impressive, but uh, no. 20 years of, of history in the Xbox. So good on them. But uh, again, if you're looking for good docu, uh, good wrestling documentaries, Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, really riveting stuff. Yeah. Uh, it's Canadian produced by uh, companies and at least... Wasn't Vice. it Vice Media? Yeah. Vice Media, yeah. And uh, Chris Jericho is the uh, narrator. Yeah. 
for the last couple of seasons. So really interesting stuff. Check that out. But uh, uh, those aren't old things we're going to tell you to check out. No, that actually comes right now in the form of The Blast from the Past, which is, of course, the segment of the show where, A, we begin to uh, wind down, and B, uh, fetch some things that are celebrating milestone anniversaries that we think are certainly worth your time and certainly worth talking about. We have two items to talk about this episode. Both of them are movies. Both of them kind of came around, out around the same day, just many years apart. But both are actually really good, solid family movies that can be enjoyed by people who aren't in a family and can still be enjoyed even these many years after they were released. Yeah. So we have two items, one very much newer, one very much older. So where would you like to start this time? Well, we might as well start with the newer movie, I All think. Right. The newer of the two, the newer movie of the two, takes us back to November 23rd of 2011. For That was the day that this movie came out to really reboot and relaunch an entire troop of entertainers. And just a, a troop of performers who had really fallen by the wayside, were out of the public eye for quite a while, or if they were in the public eye, it was uh, in less prominent ways, and their stars had kind of faded. Uh, and they had a return to prominence, uh, to importance in, in entertainment and comedy uh, with this movie that actually was named after them. It is The Muppets. Yeah, so the Muppets hadn't really done, I mean, as of 2011, like since 2011, there have been a few Muppet things happening here and there to varying degrees of success. Mm-hmm. But as of 2011, the Muppet as a, as a franchise was kind of dormant for about 10 years, I'd say. Uh, yeah, I, I know there were some attempts at, uh, Muppet movies. Yeah, like, but the last one before that would have been what, Muppet Treasure Island or Muppets in Space? Yes, uh, there's some really not good or not memorable movies in the late 90s. Yeah. That uh, just never really landed. They didn't have critical success. They did not have commercial success. And it just kind of felt like Disney, uh, who owns the Muppets, they bought uh, them from Jim Henson Company, didn't really know what to do with the Muppets. Yeah. Because when the Muppets were firing on all cylinders, like when they were kind of in the hands of people who knew what to do with the Muppets, they were great. The original Muppet show was kind of like a nice counterpoint to um, Saturday Night Live. Mm -hmm. Sesame Street was like, for tons of us, like kind of a foundational part of a lot of people's childhoods, you know, like in terms of like humor and just, it was, it was educational, but it also kind of helped form a lot of our sense of humor. Like in terms of like our whole generation being kind of sarcastic, it's because a lot of the Muppets were sarcastic. Waiter, what's the fly doing in my soup? (laughs) Looks like the backstroke. Yeah, or like, you know, uh, it's like, Ernie, how do I look? Well, with your eyes, Bert. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like, seriously, it's like, oh, that's why we're all sarcastic. Great. But, yeah, I mean, like, when there was Muppets media being made by people that, you know, really knew the characters and everything, it was good. Like, the, the first few Muppets movies were great. Like, the Muppets... Like, the original 1979 Muppet movie was classic. Muppet State Muppet Manhattan. Muppet Manhattan was classic. You know, e- even going into the 90s, there was some Muppet stuff that was okay. Like, the Muppet Christmas Carol was a nice take mm-hmm. on the classic and things like that. Like, For a lot of people, that's, like, a, a must-watch come the holiday season. Yeah, like... Lots of great Muppet stuff, but, like, they kind of fell off for a while. Like, you know, as, you know, 
things do. Like things typically, you know, go in and out of style. Like some, some things that are kind of like generational things like the Muppets sometimes never come back because they don't really make sense. But the Muppets as characters, like they're not really tied to a specific time or anything like that. They're just kind of like a loose idea where it's like, oh, they're, they're supposed to be like a theater troupe of like a bunch of freaks. And that idea never really goes away. No, there's always going to be uh, vagabonds and, uh, you know, buskers, if you will. But they were like a, a weird freak version of, uh, like, vaudeville. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I think some type of that thing will always exist. So the Muppets' as characters will always have, like, some way of working, even if they're not 100% your thing. Like, they're not going to be, like, the top of, like, pop culture anymore, but, like, they're always going to have a place in pop culture, I think. I would think so, too. And uh, there's things and, you know, humor and comedy you can present through the Muppets, uh, you know, as uh, means of, like, social commentary that you couldn't necessarily do with a real person. No, exactly. Because, you know, they're puppets and, like, you know... There's... You can look and watch them, and while they might be live action, there's the immediate disconnect to know that they're not real. Yeah. Exactly. And so the Muppets had fallen on hard times, uh, but the Muppets had a really big fan in actor and writer Jason Siegel, who you might be hearing that name now and thinking like, wait, who, who's that guy again? It's kind of familiar. I feel like I should know him. He was the big uh, kind of goofy fun guy on How I Met Your Mother. Yeah, also on Freaks and Geeks and, you know, yeah, he, he's also been in a couple of like, you know, movies like... uh Forgetting Sarah Marshall and... Knocked up. Knocked up. Uh, Get Him to the Greek, I think was another one. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, he's he's done... He's been around. Like, you you probably know who he is, but, yeah. He's also a writer. He's also done some producing and stuff. But, like, in this movie, like, he was a big Muppet fan. Like, I think it makes sense, because I think he's around the same age as us. And Muppets were, you know, again, like as I said, a big thing for all of us growing up who were, like, you know as you might call elder millennials or whatever, like it was, it was like that perfect storm. Cause like our parents might've been aware of Sesame street when it first came out kind of thing, <clears throat> even if they might've been a little bit too old for it, it might've been college age and like, mm-hmm. you know, that type of thing. Like SpongeBob for us would have been like, we were college age when SpongeBob came out. So, you know, it, it a lot of Muppet stuff was just as equally mem- memorable and enjoyable for, you know, children as it was kind of like stone teenager demographic, right? <laughs> so, uh, but he was definitely of that kind of age and, you know, wanted to really bring them up its back in a good way. And lo and behold, he, he had this great movie written about a guy who was born a Muppet, who loved, grew up loving the Muppets and wanted to be a Muppet. I think it might have been even maybe kind of self-biographical in a weird way, in a meta kind of way. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a good movie, and I mean, like, one of the, it, it hit the nail on the head for me with what Muppet classic stuff, a lot of classic stuff about Muppets, right? Like, like, yeah, they're a comedy troupe, they have a very specific type of comedy voice, but as, like, a comedic medium, they're basically all about the skits, and the skits will have celebrity cameos, but they're not super heavy-handed celebrity cameos. They're just kind of bringing a popular person in for a second just to do something ridiculous and then walk on to the next scene. Yeah, the celebrity person isn't there necessarily to be that celebrity person. They're there in some other minor role. 
Yeah. Like playing a waiter or, or some such thing, you know, to do a ridiculous thing or just give the nod that, hey, they're there. Uh, and then the, the scene and momentum of the movie carries on. The storyline progresses. You know, the Muppets, this 2011 movie had a whole bunch of celebrity cameos, which celebrity cameos are actually kind of a, a big component of the Muppets and their comedy. Yeah, that's what I said. Yeah. So like, but in this movie, like, but they're always tied to the very specific, they take a snapshot of the, the culture at the time. Yes. Like if you look at like 1979 Muppets, there's cameos, but they're like from 1979. So you might see, you know, people, movie stars, comedy actors. Like Burt Reynolds or John Denver. Yeah. Things like that. Like you'll, you'll see them in the movie then. And it, you know, they're not going to get the same people over and over again. So like in this 2011, uh, Muppet movie, some of the people who had cameos were, I want to say like some of the people who've sort of found like been like sort of like a foundation of modern comedy in a way, like Jack Black, Zach Galifianakis, uh, Ken Jeong, uh, Kristen Schaal, Donald Glover, you know, uh, Donald Glover is a much younger person who now is sort of like one of the biggest stars in the world, you know, <laughs> Uh, Sarah Silverman was in it as well. So yeah, like a lot of like very interesting cameos, like cool people as cameos, I'd say. Mm-hmm. But like as main actors too, like it, it was really well cast. Like Amy Adams was like, uh, oh, Jason Siegel's yeah, girlfriend. Jason Siegel's girlfriend. Chris Cooper played Tex Richmond. Like Chris Cooper's like a, he's a good bad guy anyways, but they kind of like, made him play a caricature of the type of bad guy he might be, like, is often known as in this movie to the Mm -hmm. point where he can't laugh, so anytime he's doing a maniacal laugh, he just says the phrase, maniacal laugh. And it's so much more ridiculous than, like, him just laughing at something crazy. (laughs) And, of course, Rashida Jones was in it as well, you know. Indeed. I think she's... uh, She's supposed to be a network executive. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the the conceit of the movie is that uh, the the Muppets Theater has fallen on hard times, and it's about to be bought by Chris Cooper's evil businessman, Tex Richmond character. Uh, Literally, his name is Tex Richmond. Again, caricature of a bad guy. And so the Muppets have to put on basically a telethon performance to save their theater, to raise enough money and and, uh, save their theater. A very Muppets concept. But along the way, yeah. J- Jason Siegel and his brother, his Muppet brother in the movie, they help out, as does Amy Adams uh, in her girlfriend role. And another big component of Muppet comedy is the music. Uh, you know, the Muppets are, are skit-based, but also there's a big component a- and aspect of songs yeah. and music to what they do. And this is a, almost a musical at times. Uh, with uh, the amount of songs that are going on, all the main characters have their songs. I believe some of the Muppet characters have songs in this as well. And I think it all kind of leads up to kind of the big crescendo song at the end of Am I a Man or Am I a Muppet? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I mean, like it was, yeah, it was classic. Also, I, I'd like to mention there were other cameos as well. They had cameos of oh, yeah, people who plenty. were like, I just had a smattering. Like, there was also other people like Emily Blunt, uh, you know, 
Wasn't Jim Parsons too? Yeah, Jim Parsons was in it. Whoopi Goldberg was in it as herself for like just a brief second. Selena Gomez, Dave Grohl was in it as well. Nice. Uh, you know, Neil Patrick Harris, Jughead Hirsch, uh, John Krasinski, Rico Rodriguez, Mickey Rooney <laughs> was an elderly small town resident. Nice. Uh, and yeah, apparently just an interesting little tidbit from Wikipedia as well. Uh, Rob Corddry, Billy Crystal, Ricky Gervais, Kathy Griffin, Sarah Hyland, Sterling Knight, Wanda Sykes, and Danny Trejo were all featured in scenes that were removed from the final, the final cut of the film. Uh, though Rob Corddry, Ricky Gervais, and Danny Trejo would later appear in Muppets Most Wanted. So. Which Muppets Most Wanted was a uh, follow-up uh, movie that came out, I think, two or three years after this that I kind of feel like helped uh, send the Muppets back to the wilderness again. Yeah. <laughs> Same thing with that, that TV show that they came out with that was basically, well, because at the, when the, when the American office came out, you know, all of a sudden people saw, oh, this mockumentary style as like a very viable form of, you know, making a TV show. Mm-hmm. So like basically spinning off the office was Parks and Recreation, which was also a successful show and Very, modern, modern family. 30 Rock was another one. Yeah. Modern Family was another one. But then like the Muppets tried to do one as well and it didn't work. It, they tried to do it, I think, several years into that uh, comedy format. Yeah, but it just, characterization wise, it didn't work either. Like there was just the people writing it didn't get the Muppet voice right. Mm-hmm. So, and I think that's maybe one of the big challenges with the Muppets is there has to be the right people writing for them. Yeah, the, because, like there's a specific yeah. voice to each character. Yeah, and it's it's hard to pin down what that is, and I get it. I mean, it's a thing where I'm like, I can't quantify, like, I can't quantify what a good Kermit the Frog, you know, line would be, but you know, you know it when you hear it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. But Jason Siegel had that down. Yeah. Like he co-wrote this movie, and I do recall him doing interviews in the press junket circuit for uh, the release of this movie, saying that on one of the first days of filming, when he's there with all the other Muppet performers and seeing seeing the human performers hold the Muppets in their hand, and he just absolutely broke down in tears because it was just such an emotional moment for him. Yeah, when he first did his first scene with Kermit the Frog, it was like it broke his brain. <laughs> So it's like, oh my god, I'm doing a scene with Kermit the Frog. What the hell? Yeah, th- these important <laughs> figures from my childhood are now here, and I'm working with them. Like they're saying lines I've written for them. How do you wrap your head around that? And in fairness, uh, if you have a breakdown, totally understandable. Yeah. So, uh, the Muppets from 2011, ten years old, uh, still still worthwhile. You can watch it on the Disney Plus. Uh, but let's go back in time even further for another really good uh, family movie that I think still holds up even now 30 years on. Yep. For it was released on November 22nd, 1991, 30 years old. Uh, just crossing that 30-year mark, that milestone, is this movie that is very much uh, like a standalone weird concept of a movie, but everything works. And it's a movie based on, that was based on like a, a 60s? Yeah, 60s TV series. Yeah. And that itself was based on like cartoons from the New Yorker in like the 1930s. The movie, movie I'm talking about is The Addams Family. Yeah, there have been a lot of iterations of The Addams Family over the years, but by my money, this I think is the best iteration of The Addams Family. I am there with you. Like, 
I also will go to bat for the Canadian New Adams Family TV show mm-hmm. because that took a little bit of adjustment, but once you got into it, it was pretty good as well. But this is, you know, the best adaptation. I, I think it's most people will agree on this. Um, Raul Julia as Gomez Adams, Angelica Houston as Morticia, Morticia and Christopher Lloyd as Uncle Fester. Like, great casting. I'm like, going to even go out on a limb and say this is a rare instance of a movie where every role is perfectly cast. Yeah. Everyone works. Yeah, everyone works. There's not a single person out of place. Like, Christina Ricci is Wednesday Adams. Jimmy Workman is Pugsley. Judith Molina is Grandmama. Like, yeah, like, then it gets a little bit, like, you know, dicey from there, but yeah. Uh, but like all the main characters as the Adams fam, like the Adams family themselves. Oh, and, and Dan Hedaya as the lawyer, Tully Alfred. Like, oh, that's Tully right too. Yeah, like Dan Hedaya, another great character actor. Like he was the bad guy in Commando and stuff. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah yes, he was. Yeah, but uh, yeah, like really great casting on the Adams family themselves, in you know particular. Uh, yeah, and also. I'm going to also put Adam's Family Values, the follow-up movie to this, as like a second part of this, which mm-hmm. is also just, it, it holds up just as well. Absolutely. It's, it's the same cast, same uh, kind of people involved. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know what to say. I love the Adam's Family. It was like, growing up, it was one of those things that was almost just as foundational to like my sense of comedy and like aesthetics and stuff as the Muppets, which is maybe why I'm such a messed up person. Who knows? Yeah, you, you enjoy good comedy and also heavy metal. So yeah, <laughs> but- the, the black, the black metal arts. So, uh, what's interesting is for a movie that came out in 1991, I say it still holds up, but also visually it still holds up. Like, yeah. It does not feel dated as though it was something from 1991. Yeah. I had to double check and make sure. And yes, it was directed by a guy named Barry Sonnenfeld. I had to, because I had it in my head that, oh, it's like, oh, wait, was this, was this a, uh, Tim Burton movie? And no, it's not. I mean, it's a very similar kind of striking visual aesthetics, mm-hmm. though. I mean, I guess, you know, Barry Sonnenfeld, no, no shade towards him, but I mean, I don't think most people think of him as one of the names when it comes to that type of striking visual style, even though maybe that's unfair. Like, he's also done some other he did uh, Men in Black yeah, too, didn't he? He did Men in Black. He also did Wild Wild West. But yeah, he, um, yeah, the Adams Family, whatever it was, it was like a perfect storm. It was a great, great movie. Like it captured the essence of what the Adams Family was perfectly, I think. And I, I think any time you're going to bring an Adams Family movie to light, it's going to be compared to this movie. In particular, not necessarily the original series, even though the original series did or like the comic strip i mean i've never read the comic strip but no like, it's from like the 30s and 40s yeah but no like, one has the original series you know with uh don adams as you know gomez adams and things mm-hmm. like that like like yeah it was good but it was still a little corny in that 60s way oh yeah and in some ways as ridiculous as it sounds i like the monsters a bit more than the original 60s adams family but in terms of like this, like this, I think is like the definitive Adams family. Oh, absolutely. And I think really what propels this movie, uh, this and Adams family values, we can call them a one, a one B scenario with those two yeah. movies is the, just the pure charisma 
of Raul Julia in the oh, role yeah. of Gomez Adams. Yeah. Like, he has your attention the entire time he's on screen. Yeah. If, if there's anyone who it's like, it's a super tragedy that his life was cut as short as it was, it's him. Like, I'm, I'm upset that there weren't more Raul Julia roles. Because, like, he was great in everything he was in. Even when you look at a crap movie like, the, like Street Fighter, which unfortunately was his last movie, he still was, like, he stole every scene he was in even in that movie. Like, he was fantastic. Absolutely. This, he was perfectly cast in this role of Gomez Adams, which this movie presented a unique opportunity, given that it had been about, you know, 25, 30 years since the the. Uh, first TV iteration of the Adams Family. So these actors and uh, and Barry Sonnenfeld, cast and crew, they could define Adams Family once again. They had nothing. There was no, you know, relevant source material to go from that they'd be compared to. They were kind of defining it on their own and uh, did an, an amazing job. And I think part of what helps this movie stand out and stand the test of time these thirty years. Like I said, it doesn't look dated. The visual style is not steeped in trying to be. Relevant to 1991, the Adams family as characters kind of exist outside time. Yeah, like if you look at their house, it it looks like it's from the Victorian era. Mm-hmm. Like the way that they dress, they look like they've been dead for an indeterminate amount of time. Like Gomez Adams is basically wearing a zoot suit from like the 1920s or 30s or something. The like Wednesday and Pugsley, they look like they're. They could be almost like Amish children or something, the way that they dress, not counting their hairstyles or anything like that. And you Lurch, know, more- is a, Lurch is basically a zombie. Yeah, Lurch is just a seven-foot-tall zombie, and, you know, Morticia, whatever she was, like maybe a model or something. It's some sort of, like, femme fatale, bombshell uh, knockout, almost like an Elvira before Elvira. Yeah, um, just with the, the long black dress, but she's also just, uh, depicted as, like, pale, super pale the entire time, as though she is also still dead. Yeah. And then, of course, Uncle Fester, which is like, what the hell is Uncle Fester? <laughs> like, dead, yes, but what else? Like, it's never fully explained what exactly is going on with the Adams family. Like, they're not dead, they're not ghosts, but they're not they don't function and live like normal humans. No, and also, what's the thing? And cousin it, and like all these bananas, like corollary characters. Like you're like, what? What is that hand running around? Like, what is that guy who's literally made of hair and has just a hat and sunglasses? Mm-hmm. Like what? And speaks in like a weird, like high pitched chipmunk type voice. Who is that? What are these people like? <laughs> Yeah, it's like if they're unsettling, they're creepy, but they're not disturbing. No, like they're they're also very endearing because it's also like the other like bananas thing that's never explained is why is Gomez Adam so rich? <laughs> he's got like untold amounts of wealth mm-hmm. and like he's always like investing money in like totally unsound ridiculous things, but also gives a lot of his money away freely to people because he's also in Insanely charitable? Like, there is a scene in this movie where Gomez and Morticia go to uh, a charity auction for a painting, uh, you know, whatever auction house in town. It's never explained exactly it, where it was they a, live. I think it was a Chinese finger trap. Oh, that's right, too, yes. Yeah, or they they might have given a couple of items, put them up for auction, and then they basically outbid each other, get in a bidding war with each other. Yes. Just to buy their own stuff back. <laughs> 
and because they have uh, like untold family fortune and, and the the premise of this movie uh this first Adams family movie from 1991 is that Uncle Fester has been away from the family for a, a significant amount of time he finally reappears and uh you know of course Gomez and the rest of the family are all, are all happy to see Uncle Fester once again but as the movie goes on they kind of realize that something's up with Uncle Fester more so than normal mind you yeah and turns out he's been brainwashed, and uh, his handler, the the you know his therapist or whatnot, uh, is a character he calls mother, uh, is basically there to try and rob the 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 Adams family fortune. Yeah, of course it does not go well. No, it doesn't go well because like you can't really rob from Gomez Adams, who's an insane person, <laughs> who is like his vault exists in an alternate dimension, essentially. <laughs> I, I don't want to spoil too much. If you've never seen this movie, it's fun, and you should watch it. I mean, it's it's not like a big crazy time investment or anything. Like, you know, it's a. I think it's an hour and a half or so, but yeah, it's uh It's a solid hour and a half, an enjoyable romp, and uh, to tie this into kind of electronic games and entertainment, uh, around the time, basically... Basically, prior to GoldenEye for the N64, anything that was uh, a video game that tied into a movie released around the same time was more often than not god-awful. Yeah. Uh, and Adam's Family, video games, really unspectacular. But was what was spectacular was the tie-in Adam's Family pinball table that has is one of, if not the best-selling pinball tables ever, and widely regarded as being one of the best tables ever made and it's a tie-in table to the Adams Family movie. They had Raul Julia and Angelica Houston record some new lines of dialogue for use on the table, and even has really interesting other mechanics to make it fit in with the Adams Family theme. Uh, most, most notably, uh, in one of the corners of the playfield is the ability to have Thing pop out of a box, just be the hand and come grab your ball and slink back into his box, and now your ball is locked for multi-ball. Yeah. There's even uh, a mode you can unlock to uh, trigger a seance, and then your bo- your your machine will itself knock three times from inside the body of the pinball machine itself. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, if ever you get a chance, if you're at some old arcade and they have a, a pinball table, or you have a, a digital device and are able to pull up the Adam Family Adam's Family Pinball Table. That way, do it, play it, enjoy it. Worthwhile. It was one of the most ubiquitous machines of that era. One of the best machines out there. Tying into the Adam's Family movie that came out November 22nd, 1991. It is 30 years old. Prior to that, we spoke about The Muppets, the reboot movie from Jason Segel that relaunched the careers of, of The Muppets as a comedy troupe sent them back into the public consciousness. It is... Ten years old, having come out on November twenty third, twenty eleven. So, uh, good times, good movies all around, and yeah. uh, I think this was a good time. Yeah, I think so too. And we hope you out there had a good time listening to us. Uh, and if you didn't, well, we'll just have to try and win you over again next time. In the meantime, you can uh, send us your thoughts on the Muppets movie. Uh, did you believe? Did Did you know it was ten years old already? Uh, or uh, do you believe that the Adams Family movie still holds up after 30 years or anything else? Do you believe that uh, Star Citizen will actually be a game that releases in the future? <laughs> Let us know your thoughts on all that and anything else. 
Email us info at thearcadeshow.com or hit us up on the evil social media platforms. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook at the arcade show on both of those platforms. And if you haven't done so already, the gift giving season is uh, quickly drawing upon us. So give yourself the gift of subscribing to this program. We're on iTunes. We are on Google Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both those platforms can be found on our homepage of the arcade show.com. So until next time, good night, everybody. Good night.